question for us this morning is how would you define the gospel? Think about that for a moment. How would you define the gospel if somebody were to ask you, Kevin, did you want to share? <laughs> uh, but how would you define the gospel? How would you explain it to somebody? If somebody were to ask you what the gospel was or is, what would you say? Well, Webster's Dictionary, of all things, defines it in a few ways. And I was actually surprised by how they defined it. They defined it as the message concerning Christ, the kingdom of God, and salvation, as well as something accepted or promoted as infallible truth or as a guiding principle or doctrine. It gets pretty close. It's not full, it's not complete, but it actually gets fairly close. But it is incomplete. You see, the gospel is about Jesus, his life of living perfectly as a sacrifice for us, shedding his blood on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, which scripture says death is the wage of sin. His resurrection on the third day, overcoming the power of death. His ascension into heaven, and thereby granting and establishing us as His church through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then His promised return to judge unbelievers and restore all things. It is the greatest and most important message of all time. But let me ask you a different question with this. When was the last time that you shared the gospel, this most important of messages with someone? Is this sharing done with regularity and with intentionality? If not, why? Is it fear? Apathy? Lack of opportunity? Just not a priority? What is it? You see, this morning we're going to look at Jesus' commission for each believer with hope that you might be reinvigorated in his mission. And for the person that's here this morning who has yet to believe on Jesus, you may wonder who Jesus is. You may wonder if you want to give your life to Him. You may not even know what this gospel thing is. My hope is that you may come to know why Christians are compelled to share this gospel and that you might respond accordingly to it in faith. My hope is that this morning that we embrace the commission that Jesus has given us as His followers. So let's go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 24 verses of the chapter of 10 in the Gospel of Luke as we continue in our Luke series. And the beauty of this passage is, is that God gets to dictate as we walk through the verses. He dictates what we proclaim, not us. The teacher, teach, the, the teacher teaches through his scriptures, and we teach what he has given us. And that is Christ. This is what it says. After this, the Lord, that is Jesus, appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. 
And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works have been done in you that have been done in Tyre Sinon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice. Do not rejoice that you're, excuse me, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such as was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. As followers of you, may we embrace your commission with the fervency and joy that you desire. For those that have yet to believe on you for salvation, may they cling to this gospel. May they repent and believe on it. May they receive the message that is proclaimed this morning with eyes that see and ears that hear. May each of us this morning be touched by your Spirit. Work in our hearts. Move me to the back and you to the front. And bring your word forth in power. And we ask this in your name. Amen.
As we just read, Jesus commissions his followers to fulfill his mission with joy in light of God's judgment. Jesus commissions his followers to fulfill his mission with joy in light of God's judgment. Now, honestly, I want us to think about how we feel about the mission of Jesus. I mean, if somebody were to say that Jesus is calling you today to share the gospel, what would be your first reaction? What if God was calling you today to simply stand at your neighbor's door and proclaim the truth? The coworker who shares your cubicle, the person who sits next to you at school or is on your sports team. What if God were to call you to do that today? What if God was calling you to Spain or to North Korea or to Mendocino County? <laughs> Some might choose North Korea. The truth is, what's your response to that? When you hear that laborers are needed, is your response, oh God, that might be me? Or is your response of, I sure hope they find somebody? That's what Jesus is actually getting at today. In our body, as a, as a local congregation, we have wonderful biblical fellowship. We have wonderful relationship with one another. And wonderful, godly, biblical fellowship is attractive, right? John tells us that they will know you by your love for one another. That's how they'll know the followers of Jesus. The temptation in that, though, is to remain within that relationship and lose the passion, vigor, and intensity for his mission. And in a world and culture that seems so out there and so gone, we can hoard our children just trying to keep them safe and unstained from the world. But Jesus never said that was the promise to them following him. He said, teach them my ways. He didn't say protect them from the world. He actually said, teach them my ways. And we know from the Psalms that children were given that they might be shot out as arrows into the world to be his messengers. His call is that we are his messengers on mission. That's his call. And when we become too comfortable inside of the community of believers, we can lose sight, for that, lose sight of that mission. And by doing that, we lose the opportunity, one, to see the power of God, but we also don't see lives changed. We don't see lives transformed. We don't see lives renewed. And so... Jesus has commissioned his followers to fulfill his mission with joy. This is a commission on mission with joy. It's not one of fear or begrudgment. He's saying, listen, when you go on mission with me, it should be one of joy, not fear, not disdain, not, oh my gosh, I got to go do this. And I think, I know in my own life, there are times that I can feel, oh, 
that tension, and you know when the Lord is working in your life and tension rises up, right now, Lord, really? I was just enjoying my meal. Like, why do I have to talk to him about you now? Right? And so we run across that. But have we actually really thought about the fact that that's to be motivated by joy? That the mission of Christ is to be motivated by joy. See, followers of Jesus here are given a mission. And this mission demands a humble, merciful love for others and single-minded devotion to Christ that can be summed up in Luke 9.48, which we looked at last week, when Jesus says, For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus has called us to imitate his life and to be his representatives as his servants to the world. That's what our calling is. That's the calling that he's given us. That's the calling that he's given you wherever you are planted. Your missionary work is at whatever job you work. Your missionary job is wherever you are standing in that moment. It can be at the line at Safeway. It can be waiting for the bathroom at a ball game. It can be in Zimbabwe. But wherever you are, God has commissioned you to be His representative, to be His missionary. Well, this brings us to our passage this morning, then in verse 1, where he says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers in pairs of him. Now, some of you may notice that in your translation it says 70. And there is a manuscript, in the original manuscripts, there is a discrepancy here. The two primary manuscripts actually disagree as to whether it's 70 or 72. And I can go into that, but one, it would bore you, and two, it's not relevant to what we're talking about. And the truth is that given the evidence for both numbers, they're actually fairly clear in both directions. And so it's not wise to speculate why that difference exists because we know that the rest of the text agrees. So the number we're not going to spend any time looking at this morning, but we're going to be looking at the message that does agree, that is clear, that is unified. And so in verse 2, it says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, what is the harvest? I mean, we are very familiar with the harvest up in this area, right? We, we know when harvest season hits, Usually, if it comes early, it's in August. If it comes late, it's kind of the first week of October. But with the wine industry, we know what the harvest is. And he says that the harvest is plentiful. This is a ripe harvest. It's many. You look all over Sonoma County and you see vineyards everywhere. I mean, we've lost apples. We've lost prunes. We've lost hops. All of that's gone. It's wine. It's grapes, right? You go everywhere. It's grapes. But what Jesus is saying is this is a plentiful harvest of people. It's the multitude of humanity. And today, March 3rd, 2024, the multitude refers to the 479,650 people who reside in Sonoma County. The multiple Multitude refers to the 341,218,494 people who live in the United States. The multitude 
refers to the 8,095,000,2,703 people who are in the world. The harvest is huge, but the laborers are few. That's what Jesus is saying. If you think about those in Sonoma County today that are in Christ-centered churches this morning, that believe that Jesus is the only means of salvation, that He is the Son of God, the promised Savior, and He is the only means of our salvation. I would bet that that number is less than 15,000 in our county. 27,000 people in this county, according to census data, say that they know Christ, or excuse me, that they're Christians. That seems to me to be quite high, just from my experience. So let's put that number into a regular place and simply look at the churches in Santa Rosa. We know from our numbers during COVID when we actually did attendance amongst the 30 churches that were being represented each week with leaders, that that average attendance in the county at that time, and this had not to, this was before doors were closed and things like that, the average attendance was somewhere around 4,000 people. 4,000 people regularly attending worship services in Christ-centered bodies on a weekly basis in Sonoma County. 4,000 out of nearly 500,000 people. The laborers are few. Your labor matters. It matters. And so he says here, you're to go into that. I'm sending out laborers into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful. Well, how is this harvest harvested? How is Jesus' mission within the harvest fulfilled? Well, he doesn't leave them without direction. He instructs them how to carry out his mission. And so how should Jesus' followers carry out his mission? We're going to see three specific things. The first is we see here in verses 2 through 7. He says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go house from house. What is it? We're to prayerfully go, knowing opposition may arise, content in his provision. We prayerfully go, knowing opposition may arise, content in his provision. Our missional work starts with prayer. It begins with prayer. And then we go. We go out. It's kind of like Nike. Just do it. If you wait too long, it's not going to happen. He says, go, pray for the workers, and go. Go. But know this, you're going out as lambs amidst wolves. I think sometimes as followers of Christ, we can expect rejection 
And that discourages us. And what I would encourage you to is expect rejection and rejoice with acceptance. When I was at Pac Bell in college, I worked at Pacific Bell. For those of you that are a little bit younger, Pacific Bell is what is now AT&T. Um, but Pacific Bell, we would have out, outside sales calls. I was not an outside salesman. Didn't like it, couldn't do it, it wasn't my thing. But the outside salesman who would come in, I remember talking with some of our managers who were hiring outside sales reps, and they found out that I was going into ministry, that that was the heart. And one of the questions that they asked me is, do you know any missionaries? And I said, what do you mean, do I know any missionaries? Said, yeah, do you know any missionaries that are coming home for a while? I'm like, eh, not really, I suppose. By why? That is intriguing. It's a funny question. They go, because missionaries know how to deal with taking no. <laughs> and they said, we found that our best outside sales reps are people who are missionaries because they can deal with the no. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Right? What they used to share was that the two best people for outside sales were baseball players and missionaries because they faced constant rejection and failure and could keep on going. We need to have that mentality. We need to have the mentality that we're lambs amidst wolves. It's okay that we're being devoured because we're not being devoured in His strength. It is Christ being the one who sustains us. Now what's important to know is this Greek word here for send out is ekbalo. And ekbalo is unique because ekbalo is also the word that is used to thrust out or expel a demon. It's saying that it's being done with great force. What he's saying is, is in essence, as Charles Spurgeon points out, that it takes as much effort to get a person thrust out into the ministry as it does to cast out a demon. And so he's saying, send them out, thrust them out. This is a work of God. Don't just all of a sudden decide I'm heading out and I go and I do it. You need to be prepared by undergirding that with prayer. We need to be prayerfully going. We need prayerfully seeking opportunities. Have you ever been afraid to pray for somebody's salvation because God might use you? I mean, think about it. We're like, Lord, please bring this person to salvation, but please don't use me. I know that in my own life where I've been witnessing to doctors and other ones that I don't want to. They scare me. And it's like, hey, Lord. And I remember being convicted of my own spirit in that, like, okay, God, if I'm going to pray this, then that means that I need to be the vessel for this too. I need to be willing that that's who you choose to use. Derek Thomas says this. He says, you cannot pray that prayer unless you yourself are willing to go. You cannot pray this prayer that God would send forth laborers without considering that you yourself might be the answer to that very prayer. The harvest fields are vast. Whether we are thinking of home missions, the needs within the city, thinking of church planning within this nation, missions in the nations of this world, the harvest fields are vast. Make it, Jesus is saying, make it priority number one. Lord, send forth more laborers, and maybe, maybe that laborer is me. When we pray for salvation, are we praying that God would make us those laborers as well? Are we praying that we would be one of the laborers going out? And so then Jesus instructs them not only there to pray, but 
he instructs them to expect opposition. That this opposition can come in forms of both, this aspect of both by being hit by the world and being rejected in the world. It can come from feeling exceptionally vulnerable because we're to trust in His provision to make it happen. We watched Toby step out in faith on this mission trip, and we've watched God use each one of the people in here and others to support that trip, to provide for that trip. God's provision. We also see His provision in other ways. We see Him care for us and provide food. And the other thing He says here is don't become distracted along the road. Another way that you experience opposition is that you get distracted in His purpose. Other things come up. The cares of this world. Busyness. One of the reasons that we have a doctrine of simplicity as part of our statement of faith is because we are telling people that we are not going to be a church that is weighed down with multiple programs. Our goal is to both equip believers and then send them out into the harvest. And in order to be sent into the harvest, we need time to develop relationship with unbelievers. And if all of our time is centered in community with one another here, we stop relating with the lost. And so our desire is to build up and equip, but then afford the opportunity to be out in the world being Christ's representatives to the world. That's why we have the doctrine of simplicity there. Our job is not just to foster Christian community. Our job is to equip believers through Christian community, be strengthened in Christian community, and then to be sent out Christian community is only one part of our walk with Jesus. And then he says that we need to be content here. He says, whatever is placed before you, eat it. Don't go house to house looking for something better. Don't go chasing things for something better. Be content in his provision as you go. I think it's one of the challenges today with the message that ties prosperity to the gospel. There's never contentment. Our faith is one that needs to be content in His provision. We're not to be looking for the places that the grass is always greener. the Christian fleeing to other states because the gospel is not as welcome in California is actually a biblical mistake. Now, God may call you to go someplace else, and that's okay. But if you're looking for greener pastures, you're looking for a more friendly environment to your faith, wherever you go, you are going to be lamb amongst the wolves. That's what he says. And don't ever place your faith in that which is secular to remain whatever you think it is. It is why we remain where God has planted us 
until he calls us to someplace different because we are his representatives as lambs amidst wolves. But so many times we just we lose our contentment. Well, God, it would just be easier if I lived in a place where everybody loves Jesus. I don't think it was all that easy for the people in Israel when they were all acknowledging God. There were all kinds of disputes, so much so that the nation split in half. The kings were fighting against each other. Why? Because it's lambs amidst wolves. Sin still weeds out and works out in sin. And sin is destructive. The second thing that we then are called to do, the first is to prayerfully go. The second is to proclaim Jesus' merciful work in the kingdom of God. Jesus' merciful work in the kingdom of God. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You see, Jesus instructs them to display hospitality and his merciful work is part of their proclamation. Their lives are to line up with their words. Their witness is to be whole doesn't mean that God's calling us to be perfect. It does mean, though, that our lives need to reflect the merciful work of Jesus, where we have both experienced the mercy of God and we are demonstrating the mercy of God. And what this is pointing to is that they are not doing this in their own strength. It says here that they heal the sick. They're doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you proclaim God's word, it has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, don't worry when you stand before men what words you're going to say. I will give them to you at that time when he's talking about the end times. We need to do the same. We need to be resting on the Spirit. God, give me the words as I speak to this person. God, let me hear you. Let me not vomit drop to them. Let me not get offended. And when they attack me, let me respond with mercy. Let me come back with the mercy that you've displayed towards me when I was rebellious against you. And so we are proclaim Jesus' merciful work in the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is all that encompasses Jesus. His forgiveness. His restoration into new life. The granting of His Spirit now so that we might live as new creatures in Him And the promised fulfillment of one day of restoring all things to Him. Being restored in a state of glory with Him. It is the place where all power resides. And that power is found in Jesus for His purpose. We are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus as he proclaims it in Mark 1, verse 14. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now it's important to know here that they are instructed to tell them that the kingdom of God is near to you for those who receive them. So what this was saying here, what Jesus is pointing out is he's actually equating those who receive him as receiving Jesus because they're his messengers, his representatives. So he's saying that when they receive you, when they receive the words that you have proclaimed, when they receive the message that you have shared, tell them this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now that statement is slightly different today. Why? 
Because it isn't that the kingdom of God has come near. It is that the kingdom of God is here. So upon Jesus' death and resurrection and the granting of his spirit, the kingdom of God is ushered in. It's not fully realized yet until Christ comes down and establishes his kingdom in full. But it is realized in through the spirit granting us life in him and his work and power in us. And so what we can declare to people today is not simply that the kingdom of God has come near to you. What this promise was, was guess what? It's coming. You're right there. It's next door. It'll be here shortly when Jesus goes to the cross and rises again. The kingdom of God being at hand, but it's near to you. But now we get to say, oh man, it's not that the kingdom of God is near to you. It is that the kingdom of God is here with you. And so we proclaim that Jesus has come, that he has fulfilled God's promise, and he will come again to restore his creation for all those who repent and believe on him. The third thing then is tells us in verse 10 through 16, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall surely be brought down to Hades. It'll be more bearable for Sodom. And it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. Three notorious cities of the Old Testament that experienced God's judgment. His judgment in destroying Sodom. His judgment in destroying Sidon and Tyre. And he's saying, it's more bearable for them. My judgment will be more bearable for them than it will be for you because you have seen and heard Jesus. That's what he's saying. They had not. They were only being told of what was to come, but you have seen what is promised and has come. And so there is greater judgment because they've been confronted with the reality of God's kingdom in Christ. We need to warn people. I mean, think about that for a minute. We warn them that, I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for you than for Sodom. I tell you that the kingdom of God has come to you, but it is not near to you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That's a warning. You see, sometimes we present the gospel, and out of nicety, we don't want to let people know what the end result is. But Jesus is saying here, oh, let it be that the judgment of God motivates you to proclaim this word that the most loving thing that you can do towards somebody is proclaim the gospel because this judgment is so severe. 
And the only way to avoid this judgment is to have Christ who has paid our penalty and taken our debt. The severity of God's judgment. So we're to warn about the severity of God's judgment in rejecting the gospel. That's what we're to do. We're to warn about the severity of God's judgment in rejecting the gospel. And notice, verse 16 says, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. How one responds to Christ's messenger and message determines whether one will experience eternal peace or eternal judgment. How one or how you respond to Christ's messenger and message determines whether one or you will experience eternal peace or eternal judgment. That's at the heart of this. And we need to make that clear for people. See, our followers, our concern as followers should not be with success or rejection, but our concern should be with how we represent Jesus. For those who have yet to believe, your concern should be with how you respond to Jesus' message. So for the believer, our concern should be, do we represent Christ well? Are we on mission for Him for those who have yet to believe, the question is, how have you responded to his message? John 15, 18 through 21 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. It does not mean that we go like rabid rabbits and start just running all over the place, shouting and doing whatever. It means that we prayerfully go the places where God has called us, to the people that God has called us to share his witness with. We proclaim the merciful work of God, and the kingdom of God. And we warn, especially those who have rejected the message of Jesus, about the severity of God's judgment. So then, verse 17 says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What do they return with? They return with joy. And Jesus does something here. He does it kindly and he does it nicely. He says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what Jesus says is that our joy as we go as his missionary should be in the grace displayed towards us as his followers. The joy is found not in success, but the joy is found in what? In his grace displayed towards his followers. That's what we find joy in. That's what motivates us. 
Our salvation motivates us to go, but then it's also the basis for our joy. It's the reason we go, and it's the reason that we delight in going. Do you see the difference? See, I think so often one of the things that happens is we don't go because we see our own limitations. We see the time it's going to take. We see the effort it's going to take. We fear the rejection that's going to occur. And frankly, we just don't even know what we're going to do with them when we get there. And the truth is, is what he's saying here is, it is actually the joy of your salvation that should motivate you. You've seen that you are destined for this severe judgment, and God has freed you. And if you are actually loving Him and loving others, then you will want to do the same for others. I think we lose sight of this. Our evangelism, our witness becomes so much more than about the joy of the Lord. And instead of experiencing the joy of the Lord, we, we experience all the other emotions and we let it stop us. My hope is that today, that you might be rekindled in your intentionality with bringing forth the gospel. When was the last time that you shared your faith? When was the last time that you discipled someone up from infancy in Jesus and walked with them as they mature in Christ? Are you motivated by joy or are you motivated by fear? Those are the questions that each of us must ask ourselves. So look at this joy. What is this joy rooted in? Well, the first thing it's rooted in here is confidence in the assurance of your salvation. Confidence in the assurance of your salvation. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What he's doing here is he is reassuring those 72 that they still have his authority. That's been given to him. So he's reassuring that in them. But he says, listen, don't rejoice in your giftings. Don't rejoice in the gifts that I've given you. Rejoice in the salvation that I've placed in you. When we rejoice in the work that God has done in the sense of what I have done, notice what they're saying here. They were slave to us, subject to us in your name. Jesus is changing that and saying, no, no, they're subject to me, period. They're not subject to you in that way. You are their, my agent. When we begin to believe that that authority is greater, that is spiritual pride that rises up in us. It is not our giftings that make us effective. It is Jesus. And so whatever limitations you feel, you should. That's true. If you don't feel limitations, if you don't feel inadequacies, there might be some spiritual pride rising up. Because the adequacy in your life should be Jesus. You should feel fully adequate in Christ but not in your own ability. We have confidence in the assurance of our salvation that we are written in heaven. That's joyful. God didn't leave us doubting. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Isn't that awesome? We remember that as believers, we don't face the judgment of the unbelievers. We void that. The second aspect of our joy, then, is through our thankfulness for God's sovereign will in choosing to reveal himself to you. Thankfulness for God's sovereign will in choosing to reveal himself to you. Verse 21 through 22. 
In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. If you recall last week, Jesus placed a little child in front of him and said, it is what? If you receive this little one, you receive me. And he was talking about the humble love that was required, both that he displayed towards us and that we are to display towards others. Jesus has come to us and he says, listen, I have blinded, in essence, the wise. And so we receive when we are humbled. We humble ourselves and see our need for a Savior. But here's the thing. He says he's thankful because it was God's gracious will to do this. That he so wanted to confound the world that he could not be found through intellect and reason, but he could only be found through the work of Jesus. The work of His Spirit. It says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That none of us could say, man, thank you, God, for choosing me. I was so smart, I got it. (laughs) You need me, Lord. Instead, he said, I've got people who come before me that say, Lord, I don't belong here. There's nothing in my life that says I belong here. Thank you for your gracious will towards me when I saw my need for you because you opened my eyes to your truth and the son chose to reveal me to you. We see because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And then finally, the first there aspect of joy is confidence, the second is thankfulness, and the third is blessedness or blessed. We have joy because we're blessed with the privilege of experiencing the presence and power of God's kingdom. You ever thought about this? That everyone who sees Jesus sees more than Moses saw who stood on the mountain and his face shone in glory. That we see more through the Holy Spirit and understand more about the kingdom of God and we experience his power in a way that Elijah never did. That the great prophets of old only longed for the day to see the promise fulfilled. And that we live in the power of His Spirit, God in us. The Holy Spirit granted to those who repent and believe, given as a guarantee of salvation, we live with the Spirit of God in us. We are a blessed people. And when we look at our lives and we go, oh, life sucks, it's bad, I don't like this. We rip at the core of what God is saying our joy should be. There is blessedness in who we are. And that blessedness should bring joy to us regardless of the circumstances that we experience. Because we see things that the prophets of old only long to see and experience. We get to experience the renewing power of Jesus. Freedom from sin. The Spirit of God leading us His presence with us. 
They longed to see it. And so did the kings. So when we get to bring the gospel to people, may it be so that we do this with joy, motivated by the grace that God has displayed towards us. And may it be our heart as Redemption Hill that we move with intentionality out into the harvest, not trying to play it safe, knowing that we're going out as lambs amidst wolves, that our children are to be shot out into the world, that we are to teach them and raise them up, that we are not the keeper or the bearer of one's salvation, only Christ is. And we walk in obedience with Him, experiencing the joy and blessing of His mission. And so as Redemption Hill, may we be commissioned in His mission and work with joy. And may we embrace that mission that He has called us to. May we go forth with intentionality, praying that God might send laborers into His harvest. And may I, you, and we be those laborers. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the power of this message to remind us of your commission. Forgive us, God. Forgive me for those times where you have called, let out, and there's been hesitancy in my heart. And the times where you've sent out and it's gone begrudgingly without joy. May we be motivated by the salvation that you have displayed to us through your grace. And may we walk in our witness with joy. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.